0: Well, Good morning, Calvary. It's a beautiful day. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside. It's one of those days I wish we could open the roof and uh, worship God and enjoy beauty at the same time. But uh, you'll get to enjoy it soon enough out there, I'm sure. Uh, we've been l- looking through a, a, a series in Genesis, not going verse by verse, but, but looking at key highlights in the book of Genesis because, because I, I'd like to ask us you know, to examine what is our origin story as humanity uh, so we're looking at Genesis as our origin story, the origin of humanity. You know, origin stories are a popular thing. Uh, I've mentioned how that's, that, that's the basis for a lot of movies these days. You know, instead of adding on to the movies, like as in what happens next, one of the popular things is to go back before the original movie and say what happened before that. Uh, recently, I also heard an origin story of a popular uh, comedian Now, my wife and I listen to this comedian. We really like him. He's funny. He's clean. You know, I thought me and my three Instagram friends, we all like this guy and nobody knows about him, right? Turns out his origin story, like he's with Jimmy Fallon. He's been on The Tonight Show and all those things, which explains the ticket prices. When we went to look online to see if maybe we could see him in San Antonio, we're like, ah, no, this guy is a lot more popular than I realized. Uh, uh, And um, Nate Bargatze is his name. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. And so, uh, so, so he was telling his origin story. You know, it's just a popular thing and it's an interesting thing, right? It's interesting to know where did you get your start and, and kind of what shaped you into your future. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at Genesis because we're really trying to ask the questions, where, what are the things that, that inform who we are as humanity? And, and I've said this week after week, so you probably already know have these memorized. But there are four fundamental questions that every religious system or philosophical system seeks to answer when it comes to this idea of, of the origins of humanity. The first one is the origin of the universe, right? Where did matter come from? The second one is the origin of humanity. Where did we come from and what is our purpose and all the questions that go along with that? The third one I think fascinates me the most, right? That every, every uh, human worldview in the world it's, um, has the same idea that something has gone wrong, right? Things are not the way they should be in humanity. So what is the problem? And the fourth question that goes along with that third one, of course, is if something's gone wrong, then how do we fix it? Right? What's the solution? And so every worldview looks, try to answer these questions. And what I've been proposing to us is that God's word uh, profoundly, absolutely answers these questions, has not only the original answers, I believe, but I believe it has the best explanations of of these questions for humankind. So I encourage you to to look into these questions, to compare them with other worldviews as well, and see what do you find to be the best responses. So, so far in Genesis, uh, we've looked in the first few chapters, we've seen that the universe... Was distinctly formed by a super intellect. Uh, there's so much evidence of, of intelligent design in our universe. And of course, the scripture tells us that that intellect is God. Then we see that God creates humanity, and, and as wonderful as, as nature is, as wonderful as the universe, the created order is, God says, but humanity is going to stand above this. They're going to be special. Uh, they're made in the image of God, they're made by God's own hands. And that's why we value historically as the church that. that All people are made in his image, and everybody has immeasurable value from conception all the way to a dignified death. And that this humanity is not only the the height of God's creation, but that humanity is given charge over the rest of creation. You know, with, with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so we're given a, a high place in creation, but also with that responsibility to take care of creation, to steward it, and to develop civilization. That's the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 27. We're gonna explore that more in the spring as we talk about how God has called us to, to bring civilization to fruition uh, in everyday life. And then, and then we saw last week in Genesis 3, that humanity comes into this perfect plan, this perfect idea that God has, but then humanity falls, right? And we fall, we, we stumble through deception, uh, and sin becomes engraved in our souls. Sin is passed on to every generation. And if you thought that's bad news, today in Genesis 6 and 7, it actually gets worse, all right? So it's going to get worse before it gets better. I warn you now, if you came to church for a great pump-up talk, Uh, Hopefully by the end of church you feel good, but first it's not going to feel so good. Today we're going to address another aspect of that third question. What has gone wrong? Because we're going to try to answer why is there evil in the world. So let's look at Genesis chapter 6. Let's stand as we read from verses 5 through 22. And then we'll read two verses from chapter 7 as well. So we stand in in honor of God's word and, and the word of God says this. The Lord saw... This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has a breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So this is a popular story, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, it's, it's, it's something skeptics love to look at and, and try to tear apart. It asks us, I think, a lot of, it causes us to ask a lot of questions about God and about what's going on in the world. Uh, and, and it's heavy, like last week, like last week we looked at sin and, and how it enters the world. And, and it has a kind of a heavy effect on us, I believe, when we read these things. Uh, but as we as we started back in verse five, if you were to back up in the first five verses, there's a lot of fascinating things going on that we don't have time to look into today. But one of the things that it says is that it says that that the days of humanity, because they've become so evil, would be 120 years. Now some scholars say, well, that means our lifespan would only get to be up to 120 or so. But another interpretation, another translation, is that it says that they would only remain for 120 more years. And so it could be seen that God is giving humanity a warning and he's saying, you have 120 years left to straighten up and to clean up your act or else judgment will come. And so into this scenario, we also see that there's giants or these superhuman men on the earth, but it tells us something really interesting. It tells us that they use their capacity, all their strength and their their prowess, their ability, they use their capacity for evil. And it's into this context that we see in Genesis 6, 5, that people are using their God-given capacities. And it says, notice the emphasis in those verses, right? It says, to only design evil. Every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. Do you hear the emphasis? Uh, God is telling us here that this was no just, you know, uh, that, oh, people are kind of misbehaving and and we need to do something drastic about it. This was evil growing and mushrooming to levels that I don't think we can even fathom or understand. There's hardly a stronger statement in all of written uh, history of the wickedness of the human race than this. And here what we see then is the result of Adam and Eve falling into the knowledge of good and evil. What the serpent said they were missing out on, right? Remember in chapter 3, the serpent is deceiving them saying, hey, you know, what God is telling you not to have is because he's jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him, knowing the knowledge of good and evil. But what ends up happening as we see in the result of not only Adam and Eve, but Cain and Abel and every generation that leads up to Noah, is it's not just about the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just that people suddenly understood, okay, this is right and this is wrong. It's that suddenly evil had a foothold in their hearts and in their lives and the capacity to do evil began to grow. It was inside of us. And so quickly today, I'm going to go through five main points that I'd like to share. And then if we have time, spend a little bit of time at the end of the message talking about this actual flood and what that could look like. But this first point uh, that, that I want to emphasize is that evil springs from within us. We see it in verse 5, where God is saying that this is, this is coming from the thoughts of the human heart that are only evil all the time. Sin sin had created evil, and evil was springing from within human hearts. So if you want to know the source of evil in the world, you don't have to look very far. Just look in a mirror. Evil starts within us. Evil starts in the human Heart. Yeah, there's a there's a deceiver out there, and yes, there are powers of darkness. I've seen them. There there are there are demonic powers that are at work in this world, no doubt about it. And the Bible tells us a little bit about who they are as well. I've seen it not only overseas and other cultures. I've seen it here in the Rio Grande Valley, manifestations of demonic powers. So so let's not make a mistake about that. There is evil outside of us, but the Bible is clear that this evil that he's talking about in the days of Noah is a wickedness that is coming from within the human heart you and i not only know the difference between good and evil we have the opportunity to embody evil and wickedness within us that is a sobering truth that we all have an innate born with it capacity for evil and it's just a fact right we see it all around us nobody argues that, that there's evil in humanity i i thought about maybe giving you a story but you can probably think of your own dozens of stories of what you've seen in the world that you're like, wow, how could someone just be that evil? Well, it starts inside the heart. And it's just a part of humanity, just like a law of nature. And you might say, well, why is that? Why is human nature that way? Well, remember last week, right? Genesis chapter three, the deceiver was active in the world and he he used sin in the heart of man to lead us away from the will of God. Adam and Eve were distracted from the will of God. They fell into sin. And that creates the conditions in the human heart for evil so that we are now tempted to follow after our lusts, after our selfish desires. And if left unchecked, we'll see what that leads to here in just a moment. But I think we need to own that. We need to own that reality that, that yeah, there's evil out there in the world, but, but the capacity for evil starts within each one of us. As one of today's world-famous poets puts it, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. It's me. Uh, you may know her as Taylor Swift. I know her as the girlfriend of a great football player of the Kansas City Chiefs. She goes on in that song to say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I, I love her honesty. She has a line there that says, did you hear my covert narcissism might disguise as altruism? She recognizes that within us is a great capacity for wickedness, even to fool people with a, with a good outside, but a wicked inside. And that's the kind of honesty I think we need. We need to recognize that 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 problem starts within us and we all have that potential and that capacity. And and what we see this week in the passage of Noah is that the more humanity caters to sin, the more we give in to our selfishness, the more we allow Satan to, to inform and deceive our lives, the more evil will increase in the world. So if you want to do something about evil in the world, we have to start with ourselves. Evil is a natural consequence of our sin and of Satan's work in the world. And just like our world has both night and day, hot and cold, life and death, the world has good and evil. It's just a fact. And what's worse about that, all right, point number two, is that evil becomes dominant and ruins all that is good. We see that in verse 5. We also see it in verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. That word corrupt could also be translated as ruined. I mean, think of something just gets completely ruined uh, from its original design. And it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people had corrupted their ways... There's a, there's a totality to evil here that, that what may have begun as just sin now is creating this wicked consequences all over the known world at the time. Evil becomes dominant and ruins all that is good. You know, when we think of good and evil, how many times do we have that little cartoon, right? Where you have the, the good angel and the bad angel, right? And usually they're both about the same size, right? Usually they make the bad angel look cool, right? <laughs> and, the, and the good angel looks kind of, you know, not so cool. Right? And that's, that's a funny caricature, but it actually is not accurate in the sense that they're not equal in strength. When it comes to within us and what we see here in the scriptures revealing to us is that evil is dominant. It's like a 600 pound gorilla on this side and this little tiny good angel on this side, All right, You get the picture? Evil dominates and ruins what is good whenever we give into that, if left unchecked. By nature, evil is stronger inside of us, not the other way around. And I know that's not popular to talk about, but the Bible is full of examples saying that that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Whoa. But this is a great self-analysis. It's great self-awareness, uh, because if we understand the problem, we can grasp the solution and be set free. You've heard the term "absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? In other words, you know, in other words, evil will grow if given more capacity and more ability. That is not good news. That is not why you got up and came to church this morning to hear, right? That evil becomes dominant and ruins all that is good. But maybe, maybe that's why the Bible uses the language of a savior, right? When we talk about Jesus as being the savior, you know, when, when I first started hearing that as I was a kid, you know, I, I knew I had lied a few times, I don't think I'd stolen anything. I think I may have cheated a few times, you know, but, but, you know, for me, sin wasn't very heavy. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't caught in this, you know, witchcraft or I wasn't caught in drug addictions or things like that. So, so for me, the the idea of a savior was good, but it, but I don't know that I felt the weight of what I really needed a savior for. And as we look at this here, we see that, that we really need a savior from the dominance of evil that if we don't have a savior to come into our hearts, to redeem us, to restore us, to make us right with God, then evil will be unchecked and will dominate and ruin all that is good inside of us. That makes me a little more eager to know that we have a savior. Because if not, evil will dominate and ruin all that is good. So I hope that as you think about Jesus as your savior begin to realize that, wow, he actually does make a significant difference because he is the only solution to the evil that is inside of us. We'll look at that more a little bit down the road. But sadly, if left to ourselves, evil is stronger and it will dominate and ruin all that is good, which is why, point number three, which is why evil grieves the heart of God. I love in this passage in verse six, how vulnerable God allows himself to be with us. We see a glimpse into the heart In the mind of God. In Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. A vulnerable God. Just such a beautiful thing here. We as parents sometimes get a glimpse of this kind of uh, grief when our hearts are grieved, not so much by our kids' actions, right? Because an action can be corrected, an action can be forgiven. But when their actions become a pattern, Right? And you begin to see, especially maybe older and older kids that, that are more difficult to recorrect or redirect. And you see that it's not just an action, it's a pattern, it's a life direction that they're headed on. And as parents, sometimes we're grieved because we see the deceitfulness of evil just cunningly pulling them away from the ways of God. And we know that's not going to lead to a good result. Think about that. Times infinity. God's heart was grieved when he saw humanity going down a path of self destruction and of destruction of others because evil was dominant. That's bad news but there is good news, right? The good news about that is that, again, the biblical worldview stands out above all others because God does something about it. Now, here in the Noah, in the flood narrative, we're going to see it uh, again in just a moment. You might question the reaction of God. You might think, wow, that seems a little bit excessive or cruel, but regardless, the point is he does something about it. Uh, And then throughout history, we see that governments are set in time and place to deal with evil in the world and to stand up for justice. But the point is that God himself, in the days of Noah, in today's day, and in the age to come, is gonna do something about evil. He doesn't just say, oh, how awful, and then stand back. God is gonna take action. Let me read for you just one example of so many passages of scripture that stand up to the justice and righteousness of the heart of God. In Psalm 94, I'll read a few verses. It says, the Lord is a God who avenges. (laughs) The Lord is the original avenger. O God who avenges, shine forth, Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked." For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness and all the upright in heart will follow it. This is just one example of many in scriptures where God resists evil. He stands up to it. He brings justice forward because he knows how to defeat it. He knows how to instruct us and he has a solution for it. And this leads to our fourth point this morning. And that's that justice springs from the heart of God and prevails over evil. That's the good news, right? The bad news is that what's the origin of evil? The origin of evil is us. It's me, I'm the problem. It's inside of me because of my human condition from the fall of Adam and Eve until now. And if left unchecked, it will ruin everything. But that grieves the heart of God and it grieves him enough to say, hey, I have a solution. The solution to evil is justice. And justice doesn't spring from the heart of man. Justice springs originally from the heart of God. And he says, I am going to do something about the, the wickedness, the unfairness, the injustice in the world. And, you know, we we're made in his image. And I think that's why we'll, we all have some sense of justice. That's why nobody has to teach us justice, right? You feel when something's unfair. You kind of, you, you understand when something is wrong versus Right. Um, I myself identified with that when I was a teenager, I was trying to think about what I was going to study in college and nothing really interested me. I mean, I had a lot of interest, but nothing like really caught my attention. And at some point, I don't even know why, I don't even know if something triggered it, but I wanted to get into criminal justice and that was my major in college. I was a criminal justice major and I wanted to do something about justice in the world, whether it was in law or law enforcement or government of some kind. And then I, right as I was about to graduate, I had a potential career in law enforcement and then a seminary option. And I asked the Lord to lead me and he led me to seminary. So that's, that's where I am now. And, and yet, and yet nobody had to teach me the sense of justice, right? I, I had a desire to see justice in the world. I think all people have it because we're all made in the image of God, but let's not mistake that, that to think that justice stems from our heart. We have a sense of it because it stems from the heart of God and we are made in the image of God. And so note what we see in the scriptures, the progression of justice. In the days of Noah, there were no governments. There were no authorities to stop evil. So God himself intervened. And now skeptics of the Bible will look at the God of the Bible and they'll say two extremes, right? They'll say, well, God is so cruel. Look at what he did in the Old Testament. And yet they'll also criticize God on the other side, right? To say, well, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, you know, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say, you know, bad things happen to good people. God should do something about it. And then God does something about it. and You say, oh, he's cruel. (laughs) You can't have it both ways. Pick one side or the other. But what we see is we see a God who balances that. If indeed he gave the people of Noah 120 years to repent, I'd say that's pretty patient. I'd say that's a God of mercy and repentance to give us an opportunity to repent. How many opportunities does he give us to repent. Maybe not from wickedness or something extreme, but, but from just even not walking with him, not following him. God is patient. He longs for everybody to come to repentance. And yet there comes a line that you're not going to cross, right? There comes a time when God says that is enough and he's going to exercise justice. And I think we need that in the world when God exercises justice. In Genesis 6, we see that God takes action and he brings the flood But before we conclude with that, notice that throughout history, then there was a time, and and we still live in that time today, when God ordained kings and authorities. And today we call them governments and law enforcement. And the Bible tells us that because the world was without uh, a ruler or authority, that God himself was going to allow people to be in that position of justice. Romans 13, one through five says this, let everyone... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what's right, but for those who do what's wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Maybe that's why I wanted to be in law enforcement. I want to be an agent of wrath for God. I'm just kidding. Um, I didn't know this passage when I was was growing up, but what we see here is that in the days of Noah, there was no authority, but we know throughout history, not only biblical history, but all of history, that at some point... Uh, civilization started to have authority. And it tells us in the scripture that God puts those authorities in place to try to bring some sense of justice to the world. You know, a lot of times we don't do something wrong because of the fear of the punishment that if we do it wrong, that's, that's preventative justice in the world. But what we see is, is we see that God puts authorities in place in order to reflect his heart of justice, even though it's imperfect, And we know that today's authorities can also be corrupted by the same wickedness in our hearts if we don't keep to the way of God. But some of the people I admire the most are people in our law enforcement community. Uh, I've known a couple of guys who, who literally feel like this is their calling, that they're out in the world fighting evil in the name of a just God. And I think that is right because that's what God has instituted in our world. But because, our, but because we're humans, even our own justice system can be corrupted. And you may have seen examples of that. Maybe you've experienced something like that in a negative way. And so what we need to do is we need to look forward to the justice that is to come. Because when you look at the future in the Bible, right now we're looking at the past. Revelation helps us catch a glimpse into the future. We see that Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming back to earth to restore pure justice and righteousness. It's that fullness of justice and righteousness that we all long for. And the Bible tells us right now we can work for it. Right now we can try for it, but it's going to be imperfect. But there's going to come a day when Jesus comes and all will be just. Justice is one of those words that's been tossed around a lot and different people have different definitions for it. One of the uh, definitions of justice that I like is from Heidi Burgess, who's with the Jimmy Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. She says this, she says, restorative justice seeks to repair what is broken, compensate victims for harms done, and reconcile relationships between individual people so that they can live together peacefully in the future. I love that definition because I think it describes perfectly what Jesus came to do and what he will come back for. Jesus died on the cross to repair what was broken, a broken sinfulness in us and a broken relationship with God. And he works to reconcile relationships between us and God and between us and each other so that we can live together peacefully in the future. God desires a world of justice to rule and to reign. It's imperfectly done in our best efforts, but the best is yet to come. So evil resides in the hearts of men. God is grieved by that. And justice springs from the heart of God. And the fifth point today is that God's justice provides a way for salvation. The best justice might be yet to come, but in the meantime, God gives us a way for salvation against evil in the world. And remember, it starts within us, right? That he sets us free from our own capacity to do evil. It's the Holy Spirit in us that can allow us to say no to evil and yes to the good things of God that not only benefit us, but then we can carry that justly into the world. And in this story, how did God provide a way for salvation? In Genesis 6, 14, he said, so make yourself an ark. God has Noah build an ark. Now, this is where a lot of people say, well, is that true? I mean, really, is that story of the Bible true? You know, we looked at creation. We looked at some some ways in which God could have really created the universe uh, with chemical reactions and such. But... But what about the ark, the flood? That's something that for a lot of people, it feels like, ah, no, that really can't be true. Well, a couple of considerations to give you before we conclude. The first is that God gives Noah very specific dimensions. And the good news is, is he didn't build just a little lancha, right? Just a little paddle boat to go across the river, right? He tells him, look, build this dimensions that in today's terms would be 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high with three decks. It's bigger than a football field. It's taller than the SpaceX uh, rocket, right? If you put it on a scale. In other words, God gave us something credible. He He gave Noah specific instructions to build something massive that could actually fulfill the task that it was given to do. I don't know if any of you have visited. There's a fascinating place called the Ark Encounter. It's between Lexington, Kentucky, and Cincinnati, Ohio. My mom lives like 30 minutes from there, but I've still never gone. I want to go sometime. But it's a fascinating place that has a life-size replica of the ark. Uh, If you get a chance, see it. But not only did God give very specific dimensions to this ark, but the second thing is that when you look beyond the Bible, isn't it curious that flood stories exist in many ancient civilizations in their history? If it was not true, why would that be so? And one of the most popular ones is this Chinese account. This was translated from Chinese by the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. And this is how their story goes. It says, once there was a colossal flood that was so great it covered the mountains, killing all mankind and land-dwelling animals, save for a heroic individual named Noah, who built an ark that housed eight worshippers. When the flood water finally receded, the ark landed on a mountain and the eight individuals on board proceeded to repopulate the earth. That sounds so much like Genesis, doesn't it? But it's not a biblical account. This is an ancient Chinese account of a catastrophic event in ancient history. And not only that, but but one of the Chinese words for ship, or the Chinese word for ship, which you'll see here on the screen, is made up of three characters, three parts. And the three parts are the number eight, the word for mouth or eight persons, and the word for boat. So the word for ship in Chinese is eight persons in a boat. Where did they get that from? And you say, well, that's just coincidence. Well, look at this map. Look at the map of over 200 locations. This only has a dozen or so, but there are over 200 locations in the world separated by geography, separated by language, separated by time that have similar stories. This can literally be found all over the globe in cultures that include uh, the Pawnee, of course, the Aztec and the Mayan, um, and and into the Middle East and Africa, uh, the Maasai tribe as well. And these stories have some amazing similarities to the story of the Bible. In the Babylonian tablet, it says that animals entered this this boat two by two. In the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, it says that there was a dove and a raven released at the end of the stories to go see if the floodwaters had receded. This leads uh, Dr. John Morris. PhD, in his article, Why Does Nearly Every Culture Have a Tradition of a Global Flood? It leads him to conclude this, the only credible way to understand the widespread similar flood legends is to recognize that all people living today, even though separated geographically, linguistically, and culturally, have descended from the few real people who survived a real global flood on a real boat, which eventually landed on a real mountain. Their descendants now fill the globe, never to forget the real event. Over 200 stories from different cultures with, with about two-thirds similarities in most of these in this story. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us, I think, that we can trust the narrative of the Scriptures. And if you're building your worldview, if you're still trying to examine what is the origin of humanity, what it, where is this all coming from, where is this all headed, and what are the problems in the world, why is there evil in the world, and where does justice come from? If you're still asking those questions, I hope that this kind of evidence will help you to say, I can trust the scriptures. I can trust the Bible. It's the word of God. In conclusion, we look at Genesis 7. We read those verses earlier that in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the exact day, it tells us, 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. I think that's very important, right? Because if it just rained 40 days and 40 nights, it would not flood the whole earth. But it's a combination. It first starts with the springs of the great deep bursting forth. And that word for those springs is the same Hebrew word, tehom, that is used in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 2, where it says, before the earth had uh, had land and had animals, it says that it was covered in water and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It's that same word, that same kind of water. Which leads me to think, where did all that water go when God created the rest of the earth? And there's a theory called hydroplate theory that says a lot of the water was put under the surface of the earth. And when the flood happened, it burst back forth. Enough water to actually flood the earth. Something called hydroplate theory, I encourage you to research it in your own time. One of several theories, but one that really resonates with the scriptures and can help us understand this is possibly scientifically how this could have happened but what's more important what's the most important takeaway i think the most important takeaway for us is what it says in, in verse 6 chapter 8 uh, chapter 8 chapter 6 verse 8 but noah found favor in the eyes of the lord no matter how wicked our times become we can find favor in the eyes of the lord no matter how far you've wandered away from god you can find favor in the eyes of the lord how do as noah did He did everything the Lord commanded him to the best of his ability. We can and we must work as agents of God's justice in the world. And we can do that by doing everything the Lord commands us. You know, history tends to repeat itself. And Jesus in Matthew 24, 37 said this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, life was going on as usual. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And in verse 43, it says, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. It's interesting that Jesus refers to the days of Noah, doesn't he, when he talks about the end of time. Jesus will bring justice. And yet he is the ark in whom we can be saved inside of. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads just so you could focus for a moment. I'd like you to take 30 seconds to just in silence, think about this message, maybe review those five points, but just ask the Lord to say, what's important for me today? with your head bowed there just continue in a moment of thoughtfulness and responsiveness before the Lord and I'd just like to ask two questions one if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior for whatever reason it doesn't matter it doesn't matter the reason but you know that you need a Savior to overcome evil and, and the sinful nature that is inside of you you want Jesus to be your Savior from the evil potential within you and from all the evil that is outside in the world. I'd like to invite you to just raise your hand and I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment. Just raise your hand if you want Jesus to be your savior of the evil inside of us and the evil in the world. Okay, God bless you. I see that. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, God bless you. And secondly, maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, but you... You really need to see God's justice, his good and pure justice in a particular situation. Maybe it's your own situation. Maybe it's someone you care about deeply that is facing an unjust situation. And you just want, you just want to say, Lord, how long, would you please intervene, show your justice in this situation? Would you just raise your hand? Because I just wanna pray with you here in just a moment. If you need to see God's justice in a situation. All right, God bless you, I see that. All right, I'd like to invite all of us to stand as we pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Uh, God, there are so many skeptics and challenges to your word and yet you are the living God who wrote to us this book uh, not only to instruct us but to remind us that you are trustworthy and that you know what you're doing and you show us our origins so that we can understand who we are better and we can understand who you are better and that in putting those things together we have hope and knowing that that while evil unchecked could dominate and ruin everything, justice comes from your heart and your justice provides a way of salvation. So God, we thank you for that. And thank you that our salvation, our ark is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who have raised their hands today to say, yes, I want Jesus to be my savior. I pray that you would bless them, that your spirit would come into them to never leave them, that they would be your sons and your daughters and that your love and your spirit will grow goodness in them as you crush the potential and capacity for evil that is inside of our hearts. So Lord Jesus, thank you for being our savior. Thank you for those today who've said, I want you to be my savior. We trust in faith that you've come into their hearts and you're gonna do a great work of cleansing them and of guiding them in your paths and in your ways. And for those Lord who raise their hands saying that we need to see your justice, God, how long will the wicked triumph. Lord, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters here fresh hope, fresh encouragement, and I pray that you would work justice through the authorities or through whatever means that you desire so that your name would be glorified, Lord, so that we would be able to say you are worthy of all power and honor and glory because you have worked justice for us. So Lord, I pray for them that you would bless them, that you would open their eyes to see your justice in a special way this week. And Lord, for the rest of us, we ask that you would help us to live sober-minded, help us to know of the, the capacity that is within us, both for good and for bad, but to know that by your spirit, we can live victorious lives and we can do what's right, not only for our own good, but for the good of those around us. So help us be agents of justice and mercy and love as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, I just want to encourage you. If you, if you prayed and you want to just share that with me or one of the pastors up front, we'll be here to talk with you more, to pray with you uh, and to encourage you. And as always, if you have any questions about what we've talked about, email me, david at calvarymccallan.org. I'd love to converse with you about these subjects. In the meantime, may God bless you. May he keep you. May he turn his face and countenance towards you. May his justice and his love and his peace fill you as you go in Jesus' name, amen.